Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We have the cruelest of April Fool's jokes. We woke up to snow in Northeast Ohio. Boo. But this weekend, it's supposed to be back up near 60. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Chris Quinn here with the Full House. Laura Johnston, Layla Tassi, and Jane Cahoon. Get used to it because Laura is leaving us for the next week. Boo, Laura. <laughs> Maybe she can ski on this snow. Huh? No, no, no skiing. I put them away. I'm, She's I'm water gonna, skiing. Is what that's right. I'm going to be in Florida with like everybody else on spring break. Wearing my mask when I'm around people. Promise. Okay. Let's begin. The Indians made a pretty strong denunciation Wednesday of the exploitation of Native Americans. Leila Tassi, this is kind of a big deal, even though they've had Chief Wahoo as their logo for a century, which is pretty much <laughs> the exploitation of Native Americans. What did they do? I think this is a great topic to get started on this morning. You're going to be slammed with emails from, from people. So they banned headdresses and face paint that references American Indian cultures or traditions so no red face, no war paint, no feathers. Inappropriate or offensive images, words, dress, or face paint have to be covered or removed, or the fan in question could be ejected or refused admission. The policy does not, however, extend to the Chief Wahoo logo on attire and face paint with other messages like an image of slider or a player's jersey number is apparently still okay. So here's my take. the team is obviously right to do this i i really applaud this it's long overdue but on the other hand giving chief wahoo a pass is so wrongheaded wahoo is the king of racist caricatures even when you had me debate my colleague ted diadin on this topic for this podcast he in his defense of the team name indians conceded entirely on the point that Wahoo is a racist logo. He was like, well, yeah, Wahoo. Yeah, let's get rid of him. I can't understand why the team would allow someone to wear the image of Wahoo on their shirt while telling them they can't paint their face like Wahoo with you well, know, the red right, skin and the right. toothy grin. What's the let, difference? Let, let me stop you, though. I mean, I, and I'm not defending it. I completely agree with you. When you talk about no offensive stuff, but then you let in Wahoo, yeah. there's kind of a contradiction. But they have sold millions of dollars of jerseys and other clothing with Wahoo on it. And if they told their fans, yeah, I know we sold that to you, but you can't wear it in. I would think the fans might say, I want a refund then because I well, bought this to show my spirit. I think the team needs to retire Wahoo completely in the sense that they ban him from the facility and in doing so acknowledge their complicity in the exploitation of indigenous cultures all these years. You know, last night I was talking to my husband about this and he had a really good idea, which could be expensive for the Indians, but whatever. They've got the money. <laughs> they should have a Wahoo trade-in where you bring in your Wahoo merchandise and you you get to trade it in for a brand new like Block C t-shirt and get that garbage out of circulation. I, I think that would be an awesome idea. 
They actually don't have money. When you say they have the money, they, they don't have the money. They talked about this at the end of last season, how much they lost last year, and they've you know given away all their expensive players. Francisco Lindor signed the third most lucrative contract in history yesterday with the Mets. So they don't really have the money, but that's an interesting idea. You could make a special T-shirt, get it fairly inexpensively and retire it. It's just as a business, and they are a business, to suddenly overnight say, all that stuff we sold you over the last 20 years, you can't wear it into our park. I'm sure they see that as harsh and they would get rebellion from fans. Maybe they should say, look, we are going to ban Wahoo as part of our policy on when we change the team name next year or the year after. So start getting new clothing to wear to the stadium to support the team because there is a day coming when we'll ban it. But to overnight do it might cause them to be in trouble. Look, they're, they're in trouble. They don't, they're going to be at, what, a third capacity for the beginning of the season. So that's a lot fewer ticket sales. They lost a lot of money last year. This is a, this is a tough time for the Indians. They'll be fine. Listen, <laughs> I don't understand, though, what is the difference between painting your face like Wahoo, which people do. They paint it red. They, they paint on that big grin. They do that whole thing. How are you going to turn someone away who has a Wahoo image painted on their face like that, but you can let someone in who has it on their shirt? That that Either you're pro-Wahoo or you're anti-Wahoo. There's no gray area here. That's how I feel about it. <laughs> all, all good points. <laughs> and I, I can't understand, Layla, why our audience is rocketing up on this podcast since you joined it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Our Rich Exner has been precise beyond words with his prediction about the metric that Ohio Governor Mike DeWine is using for when all coronavirus orders will be lifted. So what does Rich say to expect today? Jane Cahoon, bad news. Right. It's not going to be good news, even even if Rich is off by a decimal point or two. For the second week in a row, this case rate is, is going to go up, and this time more substantially than, than last week. Rich predicts the number that Governor Mike DeWine's going to announce today is going to be close to 166.7 cases per 100,000 over a two-week period. That would be up from 146.9 last week and 143.8 two weeks ago. So, you know, ever since DeWine gave people all kinds of hope on March 4th by saying he would lift all of his orders when that number reached 50 cases per 100,000, it's gone down a bit, and then it's just started heading in the wrong direction as the cases first leveled off, and, and now we're seeing an increase. The cases had been up as high as 845.5 per 100,000 in mid-December, and at the time he made his announcement, we were at 178.5. So this rate is based on when people became sick, not, not when the cases were reported. And it also is, excludes incarcerated individuals. So when Rich figures it out, it's a, it's a little bit tricky because he doesn't know, you know, how many of those individuals need to be excluded. But, but um, you know, so the number might differ differ slightly. I don't know if you want a recap of Rich's record or not, but he's been, no, he's I mean, been he's really been, close. He's been right on the money. I, what's yeah. so frustrating about this is we're all really close. We, in another month, when most of the state that wants vaccinations will, will be into them or finished with them, this will start to turn. And I, I remember back to about a month ago when Mike DeWine was describing the end. It might have been when he announced that the, the new metric. And he said, look, you know, as wars end, you don't want to be the, the last soldier to be killed as it's about to be over. 
And all of these people who are getting sick don't have to get sick because we're almost finished. I mean, my biggest fear as I went in to get the first shot of my vaccine was in the days before I was going to get COVID yeah. after having avoided it all this time. And that's what these people are doing. We're so close to being finished and yet throwing caution to the wind and getting sick because, you know, the variants are so much more contagious. I imagine that's going to be his message today. Like, folks, just stick with it. We have maybe a month, a month and a half before we're really getting out of the woods. You know, the CDC put out information yesterday that that they don't think when you're vaccinated, you can spread it. That's been a big question. That's why we, we continue to wear masks. But if you can't spread it when you're vaccinated and you're not going to get it when you're vaccinated, we could be done with masks. We're going to do a story that looks at that question. So it's depressing numbers, but man, we're so close. Do you, do you think there's any chance he's going to change that metric? You know, seeing, you know, feeling the pressure of his reelection campaign from the right and and yes, um, other think, governors, you know, is he going to move the goalposts? I think he's going to just lift his orders at some yeah. point. Probably not yet. I think it, he, he may even say, folks, give it a month. Give me a month and a month from now, regardless of where the metric is, I'm likely to lift it. But I need you to do it one more month because it seems like that's the important thing. What, what, what is the projection that by the end of April, more than 60 percent of Ohioans that are eligible will be in the path or fully vaccinated? And that, that chokes it. That makes it much harder for it to spread. It'll be I, I can't wait to hear what he has to say today. And I don't usually say that about his briefings. <laughs> so, we'll have to see. It's this week in the CLE. Why did Norm Edwards send an email to more than 400 people Wednesday announcing that Frank Jackson was seeking a fifth term as mayor when Jackson says he made no such announcement? Laura, I'm going to go out on a limb and predict right here, right now, Frank Jackson will not seek another term. Don't know it, but that's my prediction. What is Norm Edwards doing? Well, Norm Edwards says that he talked to Mayor Jackson on Tuesday and he believes that he's going to run. He said he didn't spread false rumors and that he was pretty convinced. He said, hey, this is like third person, right? Like through the grapevine. But he said that Jackson said, I'm not, I'm running till I say I'm not running. Oh, it's not clear man. at all. That is not a clear statement. <laughs> Wait. And then. Okay, but, but Jackson did talk to Bob Higgs. Right, exactly, clearly, so. exactly. So then reporter Bob Higgs talked to Jackson. Jackson said Edwards misunderstood him. He's been very consistent every time he's asked if he's running. He says that he doesn't really want to say because if he says he's running, everybody will judge all of his actions from a political viewpoint. And if he says he's not, then he wouldn't even get a call back as a lame duck leader. So he said when he decides, his announcement will be very clear. That is not happening. Does anybody remember when he announced the last time he was going to run again? What the date was? Because mm. I do. It was January 31st. <laughs> I'm just quizzing on it. It's, it's January 31st. I mean, if you're going to run again, you announce it early, you build a war chest. He hasn't raised any money, and he's way beyond when he normally says, I'm running for re-election. There is nothing in what he's done that is telegraphed. He is seeking the office again. I don't know what Norm Edwards is thinking. Go ahead, Layla. I, the thing is, if he's not running, but he's keeping this out there as a potential, he's kind of holding the entire race hostage. I mean, I know for a fact that in the past, Kevin Kelly was waiting and waiting to find out if the mayor was going to run. And there are a lot of people who would throw their hat in the ring, I think, if they found out that the mayor was not going to run. Because what would be the point of going up against Frank Jackson, who is just uh, just popular beyond, you know, 
I, I don't know. I, I just I, I don't I think that's probably what Kevin Kelly is waiting for is is a, you know, a definitive answer from Frank Jackson. And I think that that's that's unfair to hold the entire campaign hostage like this. Like this is uh, it's, I disagree. It, Look, and, Kevin and Kelly's I think. Running. OK, Kevin Kelly's running. He's got he's got six hundred thousand dollars or something. He's making the tour of the city. He's he's articulating positions. It's clear he's running. He just hasn't announced he's running. Unlike previous times, candidates are getting in. People are people are out there making their case. I think we'll still see a couple more Sandra Williams. But but the idea that I, I don't think people in politics believe he's going to run. They, they might question. be sitting back until out of respect because he's a four term mayor. Yeah. But I don't think any of them think that. Jane Cahoon. My question is, did Norm Edwards just grossly misunderstand what Frank Jackson said? Or did Frank Jackson kind of dangle, you know, this possibility, you know, and he maybe just took it a, a little too far? Look, I, I know I Frank Jackson probably as well as anybody. And he doesn't do that when he decides he's going. Look, he, he won't say it. I mean, he didn't say it last time until he did. And he, what his position is, I'll tell the people myself what my plans are. He's not going to go leaking it through somebody like Norm Edwards. And look, we all get Norm Edwards emails. so. They're not always the most reliable, <laughs> accurate statements. And so I, if you look at Jackson's history, if you look at the way he has done this in the past, what he said yesterday is far more believable than what Norm Edwards said. And look, I just don't believe he's running. I think the signs are all there that he's not. And for people that keep jumping to this conclusion, he's going to seek a fifth term. I don't know what they're basing it on. I wish he'd run just so you would be wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, me too. Okay. Okay. Wow. That's an interesting one. Let's have a fifth term for Frank Jackson. Actually, I'm going to go on the record and say I predict that he will run so that if he does, I can throw it in your face because I'm used to you throwing it in my face. I'm fine with that if if you win this (laughs) battle. Boy, this is getting down. Yeah, Let's talk about your food fight, Jane. Yeah. <laughs> it's this week in the C.S. Lee, the news podcast argument from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. We all know that students fell behind during the pandemic year. What are the plans for helping them catch up? Layla Tassi, and I'm sure Laura Johnston will want to ring in here. <laughs> y- you know about children and how they can fall behind. There's no doubt that the pandemic year really slowed education in Ohio. What are we seeing as ways to fix this? Well, today, I believe, is the deadline for school districts to submit their plan to the state for how they're going to address that lost learning due to the pandemic. The Ohio Department of Education has been posting these plans to its website. The plans cover how to identify students whose learning progress was affected by the pandemic, the resources and budget for an extended learning plan that stretches into the summer, and and all the different approaches to address those needs. And, and I think schools are also being mindful of the social emotional needs of their of their kids and, and how these summer bridge programs can help meet those needs. So, for example, in Avon Lake, the summer offerings could include a jumpstart program, which would feature some AP classes for upperclassmen and other things. But then in Brooklyn, their plans include offering an extended school day for the fourth quarter for kids who qualify, as well as offering traditional summer school. So there's a variety of ways to address the lost learning problem. I think it's a great idea to make all of these plans available in one place on the state side. I think there's a lot our school districts can learn from one another as we kind of enter this recovery phase. 
It's expensive, though. I mean, if you're going to do broad-based summer school, that's a lot right. of money. I guess yeah, they're all getting 000. money from the stimulus, so sure. they could pay for it with that. But it also upsets parents' plans for the summer and interferes with summer camps and other things that help develop children. And we still don't really know yet, because the testing is just happening, I think, this week, how far behind students have fallen. The testing will determine that. I love that the legislature, they they said they wanted these plans in on time so the state legislature could weigh in. I was like, I I really don't need them. (laughs) (laughs) Telling them how to catch up. But yeah, I think, you know, some of these school districts really won't even know how far behind their kids are until maybe next school year. Some of them are still in these hybrid plans where they go one week on, one week off. So I I really hope that the kids who need the help can get it because we are looking at a a long-term problem, I think. Right. I think it's going to take a lot longer than the one year. Yeah, of the pandemic. summer school is not going to fix it. No. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How dead are the most offensive and costly parts of the corrupt House Bill 6? And how long do we have to wait for the refunds of the money that First Energy must give back to us? Jane Kuhn, is it completely dead? Well, it will be completely dead in 90 days when House Bill 128 takes effect. Governor Mike DeWine signed it on on Wednesday. It it was interesting. There was no fanfare. In in fact, he included it in a news release that was primarily about him signing the transportation bill. And it was like, oh, by the way, I signed this other one, too. He didn't make any statement about it. You know, you'd think he'd be touting it a, a little more. But anyway, this bill repeals part, though not all, of this law, but the most egregious parts it rescinds the $1 billion plus financial bailout of the Perry and davis Bessey nuclear plants. And it also repeals this decoupling provision that we've talked about many times here that allowed First Energy to collect a comparatively high amount of money from customers, even in years when demand uh, is down. And it orders refunds for the money they've already collected under that provision. And in fact, right away after the signing, First Energy put out a release saying, They're going to refund customers $26 million collected under the policy between January 2020 and last month. And they said they're going to work with the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio to develop a timely process for issuing customer credits. And they said the total amount of the credit, along with how and when it will be delivered, will be determined as part of this process. So we shall see. Is anybody auditing that number? Because I, I had I had remembered at times last year that it was much higher and people were saying in twenty twenty one it would be a hundred million. Why would it be right. twenty six million last year and a hundred million this year? I just would like to see an audit. You, look, you mentioned Mike DeWine not touting this. I, I can see why he's not touting this. He signed the original bill. The original bill forged in corruption with money from his big supporter. I mean, First Energy and Mike DeWine are very closely tied together. Mike DeWine appointed Sam Randazzo, the head of the PUCO. He resigned in disgrace after the FBI searched his house, and we learned that First Energy had given him $4 million in suspicious circumstances. If I were running against Mike DeWine, I would hang House Bill 6 around his neck. So (laughs) him signing the repeal nine months after we learned about how bad it was, I I can see why there's no fanfare. Yeah, but he could say he called for the repeal, which he did after, of course, first saying it shouldn't be repealed and then a day later saying it should be repealed. So, yeah, he's he's got some baggage here for sure. I called for the repeal, but he signed it and was actively participating. in it. Oh, yes. This is his baby. 
as much as it is Larry Householder's baby. And we now know he and his daughter got a lot of political money that started with First Energy. Right, and went through dark money groups. I was just thinking, I went through the story going like, how much money am I going to get back, right? Like I'm reading the whole story to find out. And I think they need to come up with like the where's my payment that the IRS has, like a website. (laughs) So you can put in and find out how much money you're getting back and what piece of that $26 is yours. It is a great day that that finally the right thing has happened. This was the worst episode of of legislation. It's the it just shows the state house was completely bought and paid for, and it's finally fixed. That's a good thing for Ohio. You're listening to this week in the CLE. When is the Canadian border going to open, Laura Johnston? This is near and dear to your heart. I know nobody who is hurting more because of this long-term closure than you are. I don't quite understand why it remains closed, but you've written about this today. What do you find? I have written about it and my whole family, so I'm not the only one. There are 783,000 Canadians who live in the United States, including me, and we have all been waiting and watching and hoping that there will be some kind of plan to reopen the border. And right now, it's not looking good at all, even for a plan. Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, tweeted, on March 18th, that they're closing for another month to keep you and your loved ones safe. And the first response, I couldn't get over this on Twitter, and this is Canadians that are known for being nice, said, thank you. Border needs to stay closed until Americans get their blank together. And by the sound of things, that's a long way away. So <laughs> I don't. I know I'm not going to get any sympathy from the Canadians on this one, but it, it's a big deal. We normally have 400,000 people crossing the border daily. And right now, the only way you can go to Canada is if you prove that you belong there, basically, that you're a permanent resident, a citizen or own property, and you quarantine for two weeks. And this isn't like, you know, Ohio's quarantine when you came back from Florida in the summer where it's like, just stay home, we we would appreciate it. This is like, you have an app, you check in, officials visit your location to make sure you're following the rules. So but but hold on a sec, I want to throw the flag on the Canadians in your (laughs) native land. Canada is woefully behind us in terms of getting vaccinated. America is moving much more quickly because our government, Donald Trump gets credit for this, partnered with the vaccine companies to make sure that we got it. So all over Europe and Canada and other places, they're way behind. The World Health Organization came out, I think, last night or this morning and blasted Europe for its slow rollout. So how are they saying America has to get its act together? It seems like Canada has to get its act together. Well, if you look at the cases, though, I mean, so Canada has about 38 million people and they have fewer cases than Ohio, maybe like 100,000 fewer cases than Ohio does. So they have kept this way under control. The thing is, they have been locked down a whole lot more than us. The day after Christmas, which is Boxing Day, they went down on a lockdown that lasted till February 11th in Ontario, and they are going to announce another four week lockdown today. So I'm pretty sure opening the border to us is not their top concern when they're going to tell their own people, you cannot go anywhere. I wonder if the idea of the vaccine passport is what gets you through this. That, I mean, if you, you, you've gotten your first vaccine in a few yes. weeks, you'll be fully vaccinated and your husband has been vaccinated, I take it. So you're, you're no threat to anybody. I mean, it's, so you would think that they would start to say, OK, for people who are vaccinated, you can come in because you're not going to infect anybody here. Because there is commerce. When you go right. up there, you spend money. And exactly. So Something like $700 a trip on average in Canadian currency for a five-day stay. That's what the Stats Canada number crunching says. And yeah, my parents, they own a place there. They are completely vaccinated, like fully five weeks out. 
but there's there's no talk at all. And I understand I'm not asking them to open the borders today and be like, hey, come on in. But it would be nice to say when we get to this metric, when we do this and, and make it like a thoughtful plan so that we can go toward reopening because this is affecting a lot of people. I mean, it's literally just on the other side of the lake. It's 30 miles away. Sometimes you can see it. So I'm, I'm just kind of feel like I'm just going to go to Lake Erie and like wave and like text my aunt and be like, I'm waving. <laughs> you could paddleboard over on your paddleboard. No, you cannot. Because <laughs> if you do that, you're going to be in serious trouble. All right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is the controversy over a Bay Village tree that was 100 years old before Moses Cleveland first the lit on our shores? And why has it become such a personal conflict? Layla Tassi, I thought you were going to write a column that was all mopey about the loss of the tree. <laughs> a very different tack and turn this into a column about public shaming. I tried to stay away from this one because I had written about the controversial removal of another tree in Bay Village not that long ago. And, you know, I just didn't want to become known as the Cleveland.com tree lady. <laughs> but this just posed so many interesting questions. I just couldn't help myself. So we're talking about a tree that some experts estimate is over 350 years old, and it could be potentially the oldest living thing in Cuyahoga County. It's growing on this private property on Lake Road that for decades was owned by the Salmon family. And Abby Salmon, the matriarch of the family, cared for this tree while she raised her 10 kids. And then in 2018, she died and the family put the property on the market. It was purchased by Stephen and Deborah Diamond in November, and their plan was to tear down the existing house and build what I assume will be a pretty big estate there. And well, a couple months later in January, one of the Salmon siblings, Jim Salmon, posted on Facebook that the tree was facing imminent destruction. And he said that he thought his family had a handshake agreement with the new owners, but that he was probably mistaken and that they had agreed that he that the new owners wouldn't kill the tree. And he pleaded for the public to put pressure on the owners to spare this tree. And that's exactly what happened. It kind of launched this public shaming campaign against the diamonds. And people wrote them letters and harangued them on Facebook. And one woman said she'd be willing to chain herself to the tree if that would save it. And I talked to Stephen Diamond earlier this week, and he told me, A, he never had a handshake agreement with the Salmons and, in fact, has never met or spoken with any of them. And B, he hasn't made any decisions yet about the tree. If his plans for his new home won't disturb the root structure, he said he'd love to keep it. He was really, really angry, though, about the public shaming that he and his wife have endured. And so then my column really focused a lot on the impropriety of that. You know, that's just that's just I mean, this family is new to our town. They haven't they haven't decided at all what they're going to do with their property. And they just got slammed by just the very worst kind of behavior. But overall, the story just posed some very interesting questions about the value of trees in, in a community, especially such old legacy trees as that one, and how that weighs against a property owner's right to do what, what they please with their land. And it, it also raises the question of what, if anything, can be done legislatively to protect our tree canopy when most of the trees are on private property. So all that stuff I kind of rolled into, into one column with a general theme that you know, we should that the right way to go about discussing these issues is not through a public shaming campaign. What kind of tree is it? And is it readily visible through if when you're driving around Bay Village, this is something everybody can see? It's a white oak tree, which apparently has a lifespan potentially of as, you know, 700 to 1000 years old under the right conditions. And you can see it now uh, on Lake Road because they have torn down the giant house. But it was situated between the house and the lake. 
which is the reason why it was not considered one of the Moses Cleveland trees. I learned all about this this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> this is a, a new a new interest of mine as the tree lady. So it's not considered a Moses Cleveland tree, which was one of the designated you know trees that were here when Moses Cleveland. I guess that was a big thing, which they're resurveying now. They're they're going around to see which of the Moses Cleveland trees is still is in existence. But they all have to be in kind of in the public right of way, kind of in, within view of the public, able to be visited and things. This was just set far back on private property. So it wasn't among that inventory. Okay, cool. Thank you. It's this week in the CLE. Let's get to one more. With the Indians ready to play and the Browns building on their success of last season, is it finally time for sports betting in Ohio? Jane Cahoon, we've whispered about this, wondering where it stands. And then all of a sudden it explodes into the atmosphere again yesterday. What's the news? <laughs> well, you know, it's only been three years since the U.S. Supreme Court allowed states to legalize sports betting. And every other state around it, us has done it. So why not? Right. I'm not advocating anything here. I'm not really a gambler. But in any event, it could happen this summer. Senator Kirk Schuring, a, a Canton Republican who's been overseeing these hearings and the legalization efforts is told Andrew Tobias that he plans to introduce a bill sometime this month. He wouldn't say much about it. He just said, you know, we're going to introduce a bill and how that's going to look. I can't tell you right now, but sometime in the next two weeks. So you might remember the previous versions of this bill got tied up in the legislature because they couldn't agree on whether the state casino control commission or the Ohio lottery should oversee it. But so we don't know like how that disagreement might be resolved, but it does look like it might have some steam this time because the Senate president has said he's interested in rolling it into the state budget bill. Mike DeWine, the governor, said he thinks the you know, legalizing sports betting is inevitable. And the House Speaker, Bob Cup, you know, is maybe interested in this money to help support his school funding plan. That's his pet project. So well, well and the, the battle before was about which state agency would oversee it. But one of the people in that battle was Dave Greenspan, who's no longer in the legislature. So maybe they're going in the other direction. We'll have to see. Right. So this yeah. week in the CLE. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to the podcast. Laura, have a good time on your vacation. The rest of us will be back for a discussion tomorrow. Mm-hmm.